go ahead and start with prayer, and uh, I'll ask Pete, would you okay. open us tonight? Sure. Father, thank you for this time we've got to uh, come together again and, and learn more about uh, you and, and your son. Uh, Lord, we're grateful to you for the blessings that you've given us, and including uh, bringing us into your family as, and uh, helping us to uh, grow more and more, conforming us into your likeness. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to have attentive minds and and uh, help us to uh, think through clearly. And uh, we pray that you would help us all tonight and grant us safety on our way home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Safety on our way home. <laughs> Took new meaning today, didn't it? Yes, it did. <laughs> Okay, so here we are at Systematic 3, Doctrine of Christ, or Christology, you'll hear me use both terms. Uh, pretty simple course description, survey of the Doctrine of Christ, basically divided into two sections, his person and his work. So when we talk about his person, we'll talk about his attributes, his humanity, his deity, and how those two fit uneasily together, and then his work, which in, for which we'll chiefly be concerned with the atonement, uh, but also we'll talk about his resurrection, his ascension, his sometimes called the present session, or his intercessory work, ongoing intercessory work, and his coming in power. We won't spend too much time with that coming in power, just because that'll be discussed under eschatology, but uh, at least mention it. Okay? We'll meet here, 7 to 8.15-ish, Wednesday evenings from tonight until May 1st, and we will not meet April 3rd, as that's associated there with Easter, so uh, Easter holiday, a lot of people have spring break that week, so. Is that right? Well... I thought it up Easter. Well, it may not be late. with Easter. It's like, it's it's the spring break. <laughs> that's, oh, okay. that's when spring break is. It's first week of April is what we always we always uh, do spring break at, at least at Inner City, and so yeah, Easter's the twenty first. <laughs> yeah, it is eight this year. <clears throat> uh, your textbook. I heard your I heard your cries from the wilderness last year. And uh, so this this book is, should be a little bit easier read. Um, uh, it's it's actually a collection. I don't know what I, I don't know if I want to call them sermons, but expositions of key texts. Uh, fairly fairly accessible, and it goes through various themes. You'll have to read the first three sections of this. So parts one, part two, and part three. You don't have to do part four if you want to. You're, welcome to do so, but uh, that's not required for the class, so uh, through page 244, I think is how far you need to go. Okay, and so you can see there's chapters on his eternity, the idea of the Son of God and the Son of Man, eternal generation, virgin birth, and some metaphors of, of Christ. And then uh, talk about the work of Christ, the kenosis, his self-emptying, his atonement, his resurrection, ascension, second coming. And then uh, uh, some some material here about how Christ fits in with the whole of the canon. Uh, so so that's, 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 that's the reading this, this time, and it should be uh, a little lighter this time than, than last time. Uh, hopefully uh, 
that'll be useful to you. Okay? I have these assignments down. They don't have any teeth. <laughs> but but uh, uh, they are what they are. I'd like you to read the book and uh, put it on put you in good faith that you'll read the book. Um, and then also we'll have that weekly quiz. I asked uh, Bill if he wanted me to be more proactive and assign grades, and he said, no, what we're doing is fine. So that's the, what we'll plan to do. We'll have a weekly quiz. They'll, as, as I've tended to do, we'll have some perhaps tricky questions with the goal of review rather than, you know, finding out whether you can read my mind or not. So so the grade won't be assigned. Nonetheless, you should be able to explain your answers. We have to uh, do it with our wives. <laughs> Thanks, our Thanks for giving us a reprieve. <laughs> Don't tell my wife. I said. <laughs> 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 we won't have to. <laughs> Blackmail. <laughs> That's a really good imitation of Rich you made there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't need it, honey. I swear. Does she... To see, edit them or no? Okay. No, you say that. So that's where we're going. It shouldn't be too much of a surprise here where we're going. Um, but the notes you have right now are incomplete. They're only about what fifteen twenty pages that you have there, um, and uh, you'll be getting them piece by piece. Uh, I'm actually teaching this uh, at the seminary uh, this semester and I'm actually revamping this section of my notes and so I'm going to give you the revamped notes too so uh, I have the old notes but I'll, I'll give you the new and improved uh, so uh, they'll, they'll come out bit by bit probably have it all done by the, after five or six weeks try it on us see if it sticks <laughs> well actually this is going to be the first week I'm ahead of this this the seminary because they they meet twice a week so they're going to get way ahead of you so um, so but they'll be they'll be the guinea pigs actually okay so you only have about fifteen pages here twenty pages how much did I give you incidentally fifteen so what does it end with okay yeah number three okay. So that's the uh, that's the way we won't get that far tonight. So uh, let's talk a little bit here bibliography. This is the full bibliography I give the seminary guys. I won't go through every every book here. A few that uh, perhaps you want to uh, put on your radar screen that are helpful for various reasons. That uh, book by Bowman and Komazuski, putting Jesus in his place. It's a very good defense of. Christ's deity, which is really central to the Christian message here. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson and Derek Thomas have a pretty entry-level book here on Jesus Christ, ICTHUS. You familiar with that that little acronym? You, you, you know the, the sign of the fish? Uh, that, that's a very early Christian symbol that was used. It's in the catacombs and such. You know, you'll see the little fish. Well, that that actually is a, an acronym, very old acronym. It's Greek. Uh, so uh, the I is Iesus, the CH is Christos, TH is Theos, God, and Huios, Son. So Ichthus stands for Jesus Christ, God's Son. 
and it was a and it was a very early acrostic, and so the Christians became known by the and ichthys is a fish, so ichthyology is study of fish and such. So that's a, it's that's that's where the name is. Uh, so that's uh, that's, a, that's a, it's an entry level book, I think, very helpful uh, book. Uh, Gibson is a a very helpful introduction. Well, not introduction. It's it's a comprehensive book really on the nature and the extent of the atonement. Very very well done fairly recently. Uh, Mark Jones is another entry-level uh, treatment, uh, good for you know Bible institutes and such. Uh, MacArthur, you see your text there. Again, it's a collection of, of uh, expositions, really, and I think it's very well done. J. Gresham Machen's book on the virgin birth of Christ is really the, the gold standard there, still is. And the virgin birth continues to be something of a, of a litmus test for orthodoxy. Uh, those who deny the virgin birth really are uh, denying the, the essence of Christianity. And so it's, it's one of those questions you can ask them. Do you believe in the virgin birth? If the answer is no, then you, you've got someone who really doesn't believe the Christian message, doesn't believe the Bible. Um, and so it's, it's long been this, this, this test of orthodoxy. Uh, let me see here. Uh, John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, the first half has to do with this class, so the redemption accomplished. He goes through uh, the atonement, what it is, uh, uh, who, it ex- who is it extended to, what are the categories of the atonement. And then the second half, the application of redemption, really makes a really nice outline for the this, for this section on soteriology or doctrine of salvation. So it's two parts, redemption accomplished, redemption applied. And the first half of this is, is particularly uh, relevant to this class. You've got to point out the next one because we've got to vote here a little bit. But uh, Perspectives on the Extent of the Atonement is one of those four views books. Uh, and uh, they uh, it's a... Uh, uh, you, you're, you recognize, of course, there's there's five point Calvinists, there's four point Calvinists. That is, those who uh, who pretty much affirm all the all, all the points of Calvin, except for the limited atonement. And then there are those who are of the Arminian persuasion who accept none of the five points of Calvin. Um, and this this reflects here in the uh, positions in this book here that we came out with did, a few uh, years ago. Nacelli, did he go to Detroit? He did not. He actually he actually uh, was at uh, Harding's church up in Troy. They went to Bob Jones, got his uh, MDiv and PhD there, and then he went and got another PhD over at Trinity. So, but he never went to he never went to to Detroit. John Owen Again, there's another book on everything that has to do with the atonement. Uh, it's uh, really a mighty uh, treatment here, probably the longest and the most uh, uh, revered of the uh, treatments of the atonement that was written back in the 17th century, uh, still uh, is, is relevant today. Uh, Sproul's book, Mighty Christ Touching Glory, is a very, a very... Uh, how can I say a warm devotional book about Christ? That uh, uh, you know, he's you know, there's there's knowing God that Packer wrote for the doctrine of God, mighty Christ, perhaps on the same 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 lines here uh, with the second person of the Trinity here. Uh, John Walver, 
is a remains still a very good introduction to Christology, uh, getting a little bit dated. Uh, some of the problems that he's addressing are no longer problems, and there's new problems that have come to take their place. Nonetheless, still pretty good. Good, uh, 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 you know, if I could say a sort of a seminary level Christology. Bruce Ware's another entry level treatment. Man, Christ Jesus does a very good job. And then B.B. Warfield, Person and Work of Christ. Probably, if there's any books here on this list that you've heard of, that's probably the one. Uh, it's uh, been been around for a long time. It was written around the. It's, it's really a series of essays written around the turn of the last century uh, as a as a as a uh, uh, buttress against modernism, and uh, very well done and uh, uh, frequently cited here. But again, probably getting getting a bit uh, dated. Some of the problems that he addressed are not the same problems we have today, but uh, still a good good treatment. So those are some of the, uh, perhaps the, the more important ones here that you might want to uh, to look at sometime. Any questions on these or or the ones I didn't go over or ones that aren't on the list at all? Or <laughs> if not, we'll just go ahead into the notes, but I just wanted to point out a few of those for you. Now, there's one in the library that's about this thick, and it's it's not the same, is it? I mean, no, this just came out here a okay. couple months ago. I it had Arthur's name on it. Well, there's a lot of stuff. Well, no, but I thought, I thought it was that type of thing. Yeah, white. Yeah, I think that was like his uh, system. Oh, the, the, oh. Big, the big, thick white one? Yeah. It's, uh, probably. Yeah, it's probably about four times that size. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> I saw that and I thought, whoa. No, 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 this guy. I think you'll find it a fairly easy read this time. I mean, it's since it's each each chapter is written by a different person, they're they're uneven, but uh, but I think you'll find in the in, in the main that they're very readable. The font is larger, the plus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go ahead and start here on the uh, our, on our notes here with the pre-existence of Christ. Uh, say most biographies begin with this with someone's birth but the bible goes back before the birth of christ in bethlehem to his pre pre his eternal pre-existence I say here jesus existed long ago before the creation week in fact made not only necessary by his eternally necessary participation in an immutable trinity his work in creation but also by the direct assertions of scripture okay so He's part of an immutable trinity. We talked about that last time. If he's part of an immutable trinity, then he must have pre-existed the earth. Uh, He was very active in creation, as we'll see. And the Bible says quite plainly that Christ existed long before uh, he appeared uh, as Jesus Christ in the uh, in the manger. So John 1, 1 to 3, we'll come back to this passage multiple times, because it says quite a bit. In the beginning was the word... The Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was with God at the beginning. And if you keep on going, all things were made by Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. So so He's the Creator. Uh, he was with God in the beginning. He was God. We'll spend a little time uh, later on uh, talking about this the phraseology here, the Word was God, uh, because it says something very, uh, I think, very important about him. Uh, but for now, we're just looking at the timing of it. 
we're looking at the fact that he was in the beginning. And it does seem like there's probably a play here on uh, Genesis 1-1. John, of course, is not unaware of the Genesis account. He has probably had a Greek copy of the the Septuagint with the... uh, uh, with uh, Genesis 1-1, and it started in RK, you know, and in the beginning. And so that's the way he starts his book, too. And probably the uh, the average person would have thought, I oh, in the beginning, God created. And no, in the beginning, Jesus was, you know, the Word was. And so I think that's probably a rhetorical device that he used there. Uh, the pre-existence of Christ, then, is taught by direct assertion in the Bible. John the Baptist says this. Uh, he says in John 1, 15 and 30, he existed before me, which wouldn't be all that remarkable thing, except for the fact that we know that Jesus is six months younger than he, right? Because uh, his because John's mother, Elizabeth, uh, is informed that she's going to have a child who's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, and when she's six months pregnant, she goes and meets Mary, uh, who's related to her, and uh, and uh, they have a conversation. Remember, John the Baptist leaps in the womb of his mother uh, upon, you know, acquaintance here with, with Jesus. But Jesus is six, six months his junior. And yet, John the Baptist says here, John 1, he existed before me. John 3 uh, says something uh, similar here. Uh, the one who comes from above is above all. Even there, we've got some sort of hints along the way. He comes from above. That's not an ordinary way to talk about someone being born. You know, you don't say, oh, my son came from above. No, he, uh, he you, you produced him with your wife. And so you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't use that kind of language, a strange language, unless you're talking about Jesus. The one who comes from heaven is above all. The one whom God sent speaks the words of God. Now, that, that phrase of itself doesn't prove uh, that, Je- that, you know, that Jesus was sent, doesn't necessarily prove that Jesus is preexistent, because you read in John 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and so John was sent as well. Uh, nonetheless, this, this language uh, it probably could be used then to speak of God sending him from the place where he is to another. Okay, John 3 particularly, I think, demands that. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So uh, sending him into the world adds that little dimension there that probably means it's a a statement of preexistence. So we've got that, and Christ himself is uh, claiming to be preexistent. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from above namely the Son of Man. We'll talk a little bit about that phrase and the, the phrase the Son of God uh, because probably this, this, this Son of rubric that comes over from the Hebrew uh, means that uh, he, was, uh, he, was, he was one who carries the qualities and nature of. So he's the Son of Man, but he descended from heaven. Multiple occasions in chapter 6, he makes a statement, I have come down from heaven, which again doesn't make any sense if he wasn't pre-existent. Then John eight fifty eight, perhaps one of the bigger ones here, this is the conversation he has with Pharisees, uh, the Jews, 
and uh, they're uh, needling him uh, about his his so-called expertise in in Jewish history. And you're talking about we don't even know you don't even know who your father is. You know, he said, and where we know who our father is, it's Abraham. And Jesus sort of comes back with this retort. Well, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, so not only is he saying I was existed before Abraham, but he he cleverly puts in this this present tense I am, uh, and it's a deliberate attempt here to establish the fact not only that he preexisted Abraham, but that he is equivalent to God, because that's the name that God gave to Himself when when Moses asked, "Who whom shall I say has sent me? I am that I am has sent me." Uh, so that, that's that's and probably then that's also a play on that tetragrammaton Yahweh, the being one, the one who is, who's in the eternal present, and uh, and Jesus says, "I am," and it was pretty clear what he meant, and his listeners took it that way because as soon as he says it, what do they do? They pick up stones to to stone him for blasphemy because he made himself equal to God. Okay. John 17, this is the uh, final prayer of Christ before he goes uh, to the cross, the final public prayer, I suppose. Uh, Glorify me with the glory that I had with you, Father, before the world began. And he adds later on in that same chapter, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And while that phrase can be used of us as well in terms of election, it's pretty clear in this context that he's saying that you know there there was there has been an eternal relationship between the father and me that is long standing okay so he claims to be pre-existent paul the other new testament writers do the same thing uh you know philippians 2 5 to 7 this is the that kenosis passage you know he says uh, let this mind be in you who is also in, which is also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, depending on what translation you have, uh, so he was, as to his very nature, and that's probably what's meant here by that idea of form, so as to, he, 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 he has the form of God, who being in the form of God, did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but rather took on him the form of a servant. Okay, so... He was, in essence and in nature, God uh, in eternity past and did not find the that to be something that he needed to cling to as in, in some sort of a selfish sense, but actually humbled himself and took on another form, another essence, another nature, the human nature. Okay, so again, we'll talk a little bit more about that kenosis passage in a bit, maybe even tonight here, but the... Uh, but uh, for now, uh, we're just trying to establish here that he was God before he was man. Uh, Warfield says this, Form is a term that expresses the sum of those characteristic, characterizing qualities which make a thing the precise thing that it is. Thus, the form of a sword, I don't know where he got that one here, but in this case, mostly matters of external configuration, is all that makes a given piece of metal specifically a sword rather than, say, a spade. 
And the form of God is the sum of the characteristics which make the thing that we call God, specifically God, rather than some other being, an angel or say or a man. When our Lord is said to be in the form of God, therefore he is declared in the most expressed manner possible to be all that God is, to possess the whole fullness of the attributes which make God God. So this is, this is how he existed prior to his arrival on earth. Same thing in Colossians 1. By him were all things created, and he is before all things. Now that phrase here, before all things, probably uh, should be thought of in terms of rank. He is, he is, he is more important than all other things. He's first in rank. Uh, at the same time, that whole idea of time probably can't be just compete, completely lost here. So he's before all things in importance and in time, and it's probably both of those ideas are reflected here. And the fact that Christ is actually involved in creating, by him all things were created, implies that he had a pre-existence in that he was involved with the creation of all things. And then finally, um, Hebrews 7, 4, this is Melchizedek, rather a strange figure, you're all familiar with him. Uh, Melchizedek sort of pops on the scene, we don't know anything about him. He's the king of Salem, probably king of Jerusalem, uh, in the, the days of Abraham. There, again, we, we recognize there were a lot of city-states uh, there, so he his was one of the, the foremost city-states in Israel. And uh, he suddenly appears on the scene. Abraham offers sacrifices through him, and uh, as 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 his as a priest, uh, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then that's about all we hear about Abra- uh, Melchizedek. At least, yeah, at least in terms of the historical narrative, he shows up in in the Psalms and Hebrews and such. But as far as uh, what we know about him historically, we know nothing about this fellow, and and there's a comparison made here. Melchizedek was without father or mother, without genealogy. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what his parentage was. Without beginning of days or end of life, the point here is not that he was never born or never died. There's some who would actually say Melchizedek was Christ in the Old Testament. I don't think that's the point because of this very next phrase because he is like the Son of God, remaining a priest forever. So uh, the point is that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God in that we don't know anything about his parentage. Uh, We don't know anything about his beginning or end. All we know is this little window of of history. Okay, and so in that way, he's like the Son of God uh, rather than vice versa. It's, It's not that the Son of God is like Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is like the Son of God. Uh, so even though Melchizedek predated Christ's first advent by 2,000 years, uh, he is the, it is the Son of God that serves as the pattern for Melchizedek. And our conclusion is very simple here. No one can read the canonical scriptures and conclude other than that both Christ and the writers of scripture affirmed his preexistence. Now, some people might doubt the validity of Scripture. For instance, James Dunn, if you read him, he talks about the fact that he accepts Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is doubtful about John, and much of 
what we learn about the pre-existence of Christ in the Gospels is contained in the, in the book of John. So he says, I don't believe it. John teaches it, but I don't believe it. I don't believe John is, is well, okay, I'll grant that. But here, anybody who actually reads the Bible and accepts it as true cannot possibly come away from the Scriptures and believe anything other than the fact that Christ had a pre-existence. Uh, even, even unbelievers acknowledge this. The Bible clearly says that Jesus is God and has a pre-existence. Uh, their problem is that they don't believe the Bible, but anybody who believes the Bible can patent, look at it and see it patently says that it does. Okay, so he's got a pre-existence. So when does he start showing up? That's probably the next question on our on our on our list. And I want to start here by having a little bit of a discussion here about the trend within theology and uh, evangelicalism to find Christ in the Old Testament where he hasn't been found before. Okay, so this is this is this is something that uh, you, you read a lot about. In fact, I, I recommend here. It's a little hard to read here. It's a little bit, a little bit dark here. But if you can see here, Abner Chu, seeing Christ in the Old Testament. Well, that's one of your readings here in this book. So he's one of our favorites. Mm-hmm. What the author's intended meaning? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he has, a, he has a very helpful treatment here of, of this idea of Christ in the Old Testament. A very measured uh, treatment. Got his point across, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he got it across. He's going to be uh, at Anderson too. He is. It's going to be at the uh, Rice, uh, the Rice Lecture Series. Rice. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's in March. end of March. Take our notes. March. Yeah. Take our notes. <laughs> we saw his uh, or he taught our okay. So uh, video. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. So, that's good. so, so we have a special. So. <laughs> Okay, so the practice of reading the Bible Christologically, that is trying to find Christ everywhere, scouring the Old Testament for references to Jesus Christ, and finding them almost everywhere. I mean, if you're, if you're looking for them, you'll come up with them. They used to be a lot more banal in in the in the old days. Anytime you saw something red, oh, you know, scarlet uh, Rahab scarlet cord, that must be Jesus or or, you know, anytime there's wood in the Old Testament, there must be the cross, the ark, the the, the, the axe handle that floated and so there would be these these uh, appeals to, to find Jesus in, in all of those things. And, but honestly, it hasn't I don't know that I can say it's improved since then. Just perhaps isn't quite as quite as laughable, which perhaps is a problem. Uh, it's actually perhaps a little bit more sane, and people are buying it. But I think this is something of a dubious practice in the history of the church that has a threefold basis. First is a an exegetical misreading of Luke twenty four twenty seven, which talks. Uh, or this is at the end of. Christ's ministry after his resurrection and he makes the stating statement beginning with Moses and all the prophets he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Um, some would take that and say aha, he went through all the scriptures and found himself in every one. Um, 
And in fact, if you have an ESV, the reading actually sort of gives that a little bit that idea. I read the NIV here, and I think it's much clearer reading. Yeah. I'm going to read, read the. Sure, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It was 27? Yeah, 24, 27. Okay. In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think in all the scriptures. Yeah, so in all the... And so the the idea that was in every one of the scriptures there's something about Jesus. (laughs) And and this has been something of of an idea that's sort of taken hold. Um... I think it's a misreading of that verse, uh, but it's. I think it's one of the reasons why people are just scouring the Old Testament. There's got to be something about Jesus in every verse. And I, just too, not too long ago, I was uh, watching a video of a, a thing about Samson. What did, what did we learn about Samson? You know, and we're going through. You know, you can learn a lot about from Samson. You can, you know, learn to, you know. <laughs> Not to chase after women, <laughs> you can, you know, learn how to be obedient, and, you know, to, to toe the line when it comes to the to the law. And so there's a lot lot of things you can learn uh, from Samson. Uh, but uh, this, the fellow I was watching, listening to on the uh, on the uh, on on the video was like, well, if you read that that way, you you're reading it wrong. You, you can't get moral lessons out of the Old Testament. It's a moralistic reading of the Bible. It's bad. You have to find something about Jesus. Okay, so what are we going to find out about Jesus? Yeah, well, Samson, you know, he was he was he was a guy who 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 uh, who died for a cause. You know, Jesus died for a cause. Now, Samson didn't do it the right way. Jesus did it the right way. And if you think of the story of Samson that way, then you've got the meaning of Samson. I'm like, wow. Okay. I, I didn't realize that that's all that Samson was about. It was a foil for Jesus. Uh, I think there's quite a bit more that you can find about Samson in the in the Old Testament uh, without having to resort to a comparison or a contrast to Jesus to find your only meaning in that narrative. But that that's that's really worth. You, you can you can read this and hear this, and a lot of folks talking about the Old Testament. Uh, so that's that's one. Uh, that's another reason for this trend is a failure to fully embrace the idea of progressive revelation. So the idea being, well, you're saved one way. You know, in every testament, you're saved by you know, believing in Christ. It's by Christ alone. And so, therefore, if that's true, then people must have known a lot of details about Christ in the Old Testament. I was reading uh, once by a fellow named John Gerstner, who's a real rabid critic of of uh, dispensationalism. He, he talks about how these dispensationalists say that Old Testament saints didn't know about Jesus, and he goes on a sort of a tirade. They knew about the virgin-born, crucified, and risen Son of God who came to earth in Bethlehem. And I'm like, the Old Testament saint knew all that? <laughs> Where did they find that out? Well, well, if, if, if that's your premise, that they had to know all that, well, then... Better find it somewhere. Other it is, yeah, kind of. And so that's 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 been part of the trend here. 
And then I think also a biblical theological commitment to the Bible is strictly redemptive history, that the whole Bible is about what Jesus does to save us. And we talked about that last semester, uh, or perhaps two semesters ago, that there's more to the biblical storyline and the uh, the plan of God than strictly redemptive history. Uh, you know, the hist- history is, is and we said this, is as much a history of the rule of God as it is about the saving acts of God. Um, but if you're if you're holding to these three principles, that Luke 24 says that the whole Old Testament is about Jesus, and there's no progressive revelation, and you know the whole Bible is redemptive history, then you're starting to look a little bit closely, uh, more closely than you ought in the Old Testament for Jesus in places where. He, he he doesn't show up. Okay, as we'll shortly discover, Christ almost certainly makes personal appearances in the Old Testament, and prophecies about his coming are abundant. So there's a lot of prophecies about the uh, about the uh, coming of Christ. Further, since the whole of the Christian system of theology is interconnected, it is it is probable. Uh, possible to connect all of the scriptures at least indirectly to Christ. I mean, there's a sense in which we can connect every part of the Bible to every other part of the Bible. And in that sense, everything in that sense loosely is about Christ. But then, if that's true, then all of scripture connects with all of the members of the Godhead too, so it doesn't privilege Jesus in that way. The question here is to whether Christ and especially his redemptive work are uniquely central to the scriptures and to our point whether this justifies a strange reading of the Old Testament that uh, has us looking, scouring for Jesus everywhere. As we've suggested before, following McLean, McCune, Vlock, and we, we talked about this particularly in CIS 1, There are reasons to suggest that the unifying center of all God's activity is something other than redemption. Chiefly, that redemption is too anthropocentric, it's too man-centered, okay? God's doing something other than what he's doing for me. It's historically exclusive of big swaths of the Old Testament. Noah's flood, the giving of the law the eternal state, the, the, the damned, the angelic realm, etc. And then thematically exclusive of subjects such as angels, human government, common grace, Israel, hell. Said it would seem that God's rule and not redemption is the central theme of all of God's activity in the universe. And so while Christ's priestly function stands as an essential part of his plan, Centering on God's rule better integrates the chapters of history and theology that would otherwise be outliers. Okay, so uh, it seems to me that we have to look at the whole of the Bible in bigger with bigger lenses than what is Jesus doing on the cross for me. Uh, there's there's a bigger theme going on, and so let's look then at Luke twenty four twenty seven. We've all talked about it a little bit. Doesn't teach that you can find oblique references to Jesus everywhere in the Bible. And I say to suggest that is to misread the text. Uh, Instead, Luke is saying rather that Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That doesn't mean he was finding himself in every verse, but rather he went through 
the Old Testament and says, hey, you see this seed reference here in Genesis? I'm the seed. Okay? Uh, and then he, then he moves on and he, he, and he works his way through the, the, the Old Testament. You see this thing about a, a kingdom that's going to be established forever uh, and the son of David is going to sit on the throne forever? That's me. That's me. You know, the son of Judah. That, that's me. You know, and so, so he works his way through the Old Testament and explains how he ends up being the fulfillment of a lot of these promises. He's not finding himself in every single verse. But he's finding references, prophecies about him, about himself, uh, that uh, are are quite abundant in the Old Testament, and so that's what we want to say about uh, about Christ in the Old Testament. There's a lot of prophecies about him, but it's not as though the entirety of the Old Testament is filled with allusions and shadows that uh, point to Jesus. Uh, if I can find, if if I let me let me, there's two readings here that I want to. Uh, read to you. I think this fellow, Robin Routledge, really does a good job uh, explaining this. Uh, might be a little bit thick, but let's see if you can follow along. If you, if you need me to repeat it or something or ask a question, that's fine. But I think he does a really good job. This is what he says. For some, the key to unlocking the Old Testament is found in the conversation between the risen Christ and the disciples on the road to Emmaus when beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The aim, then, of these some people is to find Christian and, more particularly, Christological significance in the Old Testament. In one sense, of course, all Christian theology must be Christological. As Christians, we recognize that the Old Testament is a witness to Christ. It contains promises of which Christ is the fulfillment, the shadow that points to Christ as its reality. And some texts can be related directly to Christ, although opinion is divided on which one. However, it's impossible to treat the whole of the Old Testament in that way without resorting to imaginative spiritualizing and allegorizing of some of its parts. We've got to make things up and neglecting other parts altogether. Well, this, I don't know what that passage has anything to do with what Christ. We might as well just skip it, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, for instance, you know, it's it's long been held that uh, uh, by those of this persuasion that the Song of Solomon is about Christ's love for the church. I find it almost scandalous <laughs> if you look at the uh, the the totality of the book. It, it's a book about marital love and how it's supposed to unfold. And to, to, to make that about Jesus and the church is really almost distasteful uh, if you if you read in those terms. But if, if, if that's your premise, everything in the Bible is about Jesus, then you're going to have to find Jesus somewhere in that, in that book, and that's, that's how it's done. But I think you're missing a great deal if you do that. It's not about Jesus and the church. It's about a man and a woman and how they are to, before God, conduct themselves. And I think it's very helpful in that way. So, in, getting back to our text, in Luke twenty four twenty seven, Jesus is not suggesting, as it is sometimes claimed, that we can find direct reference to him in every Old Testament text. Rather, he sets his ministry, and in particular his suffering and death, in the context of a divine purpose being worked out through the pages of the Old Testament that finds its ultimate fulfillment in him. 
The approach that an Old Testament text has value only if it can be given a Christian interpretation denies to the Old Testament any authority of its own. It results in Old Testament texts being used as either hat pegs for New Testament sermons or illustrations with no theological weight. There's also the danger, as for instance, the well, there it is, the interpretation of the Song of Solomon, of spiritualizing so much that we miss the real point of what the Old Testament is saying. Christianizing the Old Testament in this way, or treating it as a source of sermon illustrations or of theological proof texts, may avoid some of the difficulties. I mean, Song of Solomon is a difficult. You know, if you're trying to read the Bible through as a family, you know, it's going to be. Depending on how old your well, I don't care how old your kids are. This is going to be a tough one to read, right? Uh, but the price is to impose meaning on it. It does not allow the Old Testament to speak for itself. Certainly, the Old Testament points forward to the coming of Christ, and for Christian readers, it is incomplete without the new. But it is Scripture in its own right. And I think he's got a very good point there uh, that uh, needs to needs to be needs to be understood. As such, I say there. Now, coming back to my own notes, it's not necessary to discover, or more to the point, it's not appropriate to invent references to Jesus in the Old Testament that are not plainly there. I think to do that is to betray the text. Whether that be allegories, such as seeing the wood of the cross prefigured in the wood of Noah's Ark, or the wood that Isaac carried up Moriah, or Jesus' blood prefigured in the Red Sea, which is actually probably the Reed Sea rather than the Red Sea, but... uh, that's a, a, another point entirely. Or Rahab Scarlet's point. Or or whether we're talking about types. That is, discovering in each person and event of Scripture a point of comparison or contrast to Christ. I don't think that's how we're supposed to read the Old Testament. Christ is there, make no mistake, but he's not there everywhere and in every single verse. Instead, we should let the Scripture speak for themselves on a full range of spheres in the divine government whether they be God's management of the earth, the mysterious angelic court, the governance of Israel, the realm of Caesar, the church, even the spheres of eternal bliss and eternal and eternal damnation. Many Old Testament scriptures, I would contend, speak directly to these spheres without any conscience reference to Christ at all, much less privileging him within the Trinitarian arrangement. Okay? So specifically, the ancient practice of typologism is to be rejected as contrary to the originalist hermeneutic. It's true, of course, that there are certain patterns that you can find in Scripture. And analogical references comparing one element of Scripture to other, sometimes Christ is involved. You know, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Okay, there's an analogy made between what Christ did and something that happened in the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that that story can be reduced to a pointer to Jesus. There's a lot more to learn from that story. It's the whole story of... You know, the, they were they were complaining about the uh, the food that they were getting, and God sent snakes into the uh, in among the people, and what twenty two thousand of them died, and 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 Moses says, please, we got to do something about this. God, what can we do? And God God says, okay, put a snake on a pole, and when people look on that, they'll live. Okay, uh, and so it does, and they do, and and the plague stops, the snakes go away. Uh, and so we learn a great deal from that passage. 
But to reduce that to some sort of a story about Jesus, I think is to to miss entirely uh, what the what the, the many lessons are uh, from that passage. In fact, First Corinthians ten goes goes ahead and tells us what the uh, what the purpose of that. Yeah, anybody remember what First Corinthians ten says? Just came to my mind here. What does First Corinthians ten say about the the snakes in the wilderness? We should not test the Lord as some of them did, verse 9, and were killed by snakes. Okay? And so it says there's a series of, of things. You should not be idolaters, as some of them were were in the Old Testament, gives an Old Testament passage. We shouldn't commit sexual adultery. We should not test the Lord. We should not murmur. <laughs> and so, so there's a rather moralistic lesson, right? We shouldn't be adulterers we shouldn't be murmurers we shouldn't be testing god because look what happened in the old testament when those things happened okay so it gives us very precisely what the point of of the snake in the wilderness is all about and it's not strictly a pointer to jesus it's instruction on us how to conduct ourselves as we work our way through life okay and so i think i think that's i think that's an important thing to do there okay so don't typologize the whole and imagine you can find Jesus in every verse. Let's let me read another. Like, I gave, but, yeah, go ahead. On that particular one, uh, mm-hmm. like in John 3.14, yeah. Jesus mentions that, but Jesus isn't saying that story's about him. He's just saying as Moses looked up. Just an analogy, right. Exactly. Very good. So let me uh, come back and wade through another paragraph of Rutledge because I think it's got the goods here. Typology does not, nor does it intend to, provide any definitive interpretive of the Old Testament. Typology is not prophecy. Any Old Testament types are not prophetic announcements awaiting fulfillment. Any typological correspondence is perceived by looking backward. It is not in general, at least so far as the author is concerned, an intentional part of the original text. Moses had no idea that... Jesus was going to come along later and say, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses doesn't make the snake put it on a pole and say, yeah, this is kind of like what Jesus is going to do. It's that, that's, that's not going through his mind. Uh, I don't think in the least. He's, he's, he's wondering how many of the people are going to be left after they look and live. Uh, and uh, and so, so, so again, it's, it's, as far as the author is concerned, it's it's not an intentional part of what he's doing. It could be argued, he says here, that the typological correspondence was known by God when the original text was written, and so is intentional. That is, when you know Moses made the snake and put it in the pole, God says, "I know what I'm going to do with that later on." I'm going to I'm going to use that verse as an analogy in the book of John here. Uh, at the same time, that doesn't mean that it was intentional for the the human author here. Okay, so it's intentional as far as God concerned, and the fresh insight into that text really signif- uh, what that text really signifies should be taken into account in its exegesis. However, that is to misunderstand the nature of typology and its relation to exegesis. A typological correspondence recognizes, in a different context, how patterns and principles continue to apply, but does not seek to give the original text another layer of meaning. 
Consequently, it does not feature in the exegesis of the original text, whose role is to examine the text in its original historical context. Exegesis of the Old Testament should be taken should take into account language, context, background, and so on, but should not give undue weight to the typological links to the New Testament. The later use made of passages may be interesting for the history of interpretations, but this is separate from exegesis. Thus, an exegesis of sacrificial text is not expected to consider the view of the sacrificial system in the letter of Hebrews. We can't read all that we know from the book of Hebrews into Leviticus because they didn't have Hebrews. Exegesis of the Exodus narrative would not usually look on the way Deuter- uh, look at uh, the way Deuteronomy Isaiah. Uh, I'm not real fond of that phrase there, but Isaiah uh, portrays the exile as a second Exodus, or the way that the theme is used in the New Testament. So it's not as though you know they're they're leaving Egypt and say you know this is kind of like what's going to happen after the exile, and it's kind of like what Jesus is going to do when he comes out of Egypt and, and kind of like the, what the rest of the Israelites are going to do when they're regathered at the end times uh, they don't have those 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 historical markers in their brains so what uh, about the Passover when <clears throat> they put blood in yeah. the death angel yeah, passed over I, yeah, I, don't, I don't see them looking <clears throat> forward to Christ in fact I, looking I, backwards you'd say that's well, a type I or, mean, a, or a I mean, there's a sense they're looking they're they're looking backward and commemorating the event that happens as they leave leave Egypt. That, I mean, that's true. It's a commemoration of what happened, so they 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 celebrate that every year. But I'm not sure that they're saying, you know, this is a, this is a Passover that we're doing year by year. But boy, it's not doing anything. I can't wait until Jesus comes to do the real Passover. But today, as Christians, we look back and. Can see that we can we can look back and say and say not that that was the meaning, but rather that's the pattern. Okay, so so this you know so when Jesus dies on the cross, we can't call that a foreshadow. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it that because I don't think there's anything forward looking about it. I mean that's the point that that Rutledge is making here. They're not looking forward. If they were looking forward and anticipating something in the future. I would say it's a foreshadowing. But if they're not looking forward with it, I don't see that at all. I think what we have here is a backward looking. It's, a, it's an analogy, like, like we said here. Um, and so, so what do the sacrifices do? Well, well, they give us, they give us a, a bed of data so that when Jesus dies on the cross, people look at what he's doing and say, Oh, I know what he's doing. Because we did something kind of like that in the Old Testament. Well, John preached, right? Here come the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So right. And so, and so, and so there's this. So there's this realization. I know exactly what Jesus is doing. I understand what the atonement's all about because we have that background. I know what what, it, what it's about. But it's not because those things were pointing forward to Jesus per se. But rather, Jesus is doing things after the pattern of the Old Testament, and therefore, it's crystal clear what he's doing now. So, really, you, you're trying, what you're saying is in the science of hermeneutics, mm-hmm. he, 
we have to separate that and keep that separate from the idea of looking at the whole story together or, or the, the whole narrative or the story that God's telling through history that we can't assume that uh, everything in the Old Testament was uh, should be interpreted as a story or a forward-looking... Right, yeah, and, and, and it, it does become a little bit of difficult. So if you're going to preach the Old Testament, for instance, you want to preach... On the story of the, you know Moses and snakes, it would probably it seems it would seem a little bit weird for you not to rep to mention that John references this this passage in his gospel. I think you could though, because you know when 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 the original readers heard this story, they weren't they weren't looking for some sort of a Christological twist on this. They were reading this story and saying, you know. We shouldn't be like those people who were grumbling about the uh, about the, the food that they were getting and putting God to the test. We shouldn't do that. They learned their lesson, and that, and that could that could be the simple lesson that you learn. Um, like I say, now that we have the rest of the scripture, it'd be kind of weird not to mention it. But I think you could because that's like you said, it's that's not part of exegesis to find out what the the later portions of the of the Bible say about this passage. It's really what does this passage say? Okay. Does that, that follow? Mm-hmm. I think it really opens up the Old Testament to us. Uh, there's, there's a ton in the Old Testament. But if all you're looking for is what does it say about Jesus, you're going to get a rather narrow and slender message out of the out of the Old Testament when there's a, there's a great deal of robust truth there to be mined. So does that play into someone like Andy Stanley, some of his comments about the Old Testament? Sort of like, we can do without it type of thing? Yeah. Well, yeah, his is a little bit different. Um, it, yeah, he's got rather complex problems. <laughs> but but, uh, but yeah, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same, the same problem here. Uh, but I think there is a sense in which if you're all you're doing is trying to find Jesus in the Old Testament, you're going to leave big portions of it behind. I was thinking that even if you were to grant that Luke twenty four twenty seven does mean that that we don't we don't have that information that Jesus gave, so it's what is it just like a guessing game or the wild wild west to just find it wherever you wherever you want and how right well I mean if if it if it does say as the ESV says that he finds in scripture all, all in all the scripture things concerning himself then that does sort of give us the green light to find Jesus in every verse but I, I'm pretty sure that the, yeah, I've done a little bit of the exegesis there that that doesn't hold up mm-hmm. he goes through the scripture and finds iteratively references to himself and there are many. It's just not the whole thing. <clears throat> okay? This is not to say, I say, that uh, the elect of every age have been saved by means other than by grace. You know, it's not as though we're saying, oh, they weren't saved, but they didn't know anything about Jesus, and so therefore they were saved by works uh, because they couldn't have been saved by Jesus and didn't know anything about him. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, rather, they're saved by... Uh, believing in the revealed words of God alone as fulfilled in Christ alone to firm otherwise is scandalous. They're saved by Jesus. 
Still, the notion of progressive revelation means that all the teachings of the whole canon need not be cryptically hidden in each part to be observed by the eye of faith. Indeed, most Old Testament saints, especially the early ones, knew practically nothing at all about Jesus Christ. They knew that God had promised a redeemer through the seed of Eve. They observed the development of that seed through Abraham and Judah and David and so on. They even knew de- began to learn details in the, the place and manner of his birth, his death, even things about his divine personality. His name shall be called Mighty God. But these details came slowly over thousands of years, and the whole plan was not fully understood until you get to the New Testament. Still, they were saved by the self-same singular means whereby saints of every age have always been saved, lacking only details of content. So my conclusion, then, is that it's unnatural to read the Old Testament and identify Christ, say, in the Ark of of Noah, or the serpent that Moses raised, or the manna that God provided, or the rock that followed Jesus in the wilderness. Rather than seeing these and countless other Old Testament people, objects, and events as forward-looking types, it seems best to see these as rearward-looking analogies. This approach seems better suited to preserving the all-important principle of authorial intent. Okay? So, we're trying to find Christ in, in, in the Bible, and we're starting in the Old Testament to see if we can find, can't find him there, and I've, I've sort of put a lid on finding him everywhere. What can we say? Well, having reduced the number of specific references in, to Christ in the Old Testament, there are many that are there. Enough for Christ to be able to say, the scriptures bear witness of me. And I would contend that the second person of the Trinity makes several personal appearances in the Old Testament as well. And so that's, let's start looking at both. And I find particularly here the angel of Yahweh. But uh, before I go, any, any final questions on this typology, analogy, reading of the Old Testament? Okay, let's talk a little bit about this angel of Yahweh, and we'll wrap it up with this tonight. Uh, um, there's this uh, persistent figure in the Old Testament, somewhat mysterious at times, uh, who's called the Angel of the Lord, the Angel of Yahweh. Um, there's a quite a bit written on him. There's a dissertation by Jim Borland, Christ in the Old Testament. He does a really good job explaining this. And it seems, for several reasons, that this Angel of Yahweh that shows up uh, to, to Abraham to Jacob, uh, to Moses, to uh, to Samson and his parents, and such, uh, uh, elsewhere in the, in the scripture. This, this, this angel of Yahweh is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. See if I can't defend that. So it's a pre-incarnate Christ, temporarily manifested in human form prior to his permanent manifestation in as Jesus in the Old Testament. You have to realize that this term angel, angelos, simply means messenger. It does not mean one of those, the characters, you know, Michael the Archangel or something of that nature. It it cannot bear the translation angel in a majority of its cases. In fact, uh, Borland points out in the Old Testament 
this word angel that's used in Hebrew comprises only about 17% of the uses. So about 17% of the uses of this word uh, uh, melech uh, are, are references to these you know, personal angels. Human messengers are 50% of them. And then the angel of Yahweh is the other 33%. Okay? The following suggests that the designation angel of Yahweh refers to a divine messenger. See if we can't uh, uh, tease this out. So let's, let's go to some of these and see if we can't uh, look at them. So Genesis 16, the first appearance of this angel of Yahweh in the Bible. He appears here to Abraham. Actually, uh, first to first to, to Hagar. Remember the angel of Yahweh. Remember uh, Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness, perhaps with the hope that they would die, but you know they survive it. And so in the angel of Yahweh, verse seven, finds Hagar near a spring in the desert. It gives some some details about that. But if you keep reading on, uh, he gives her some information, and she says here in verse thirteen, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. Okay, so she's talking to someone who's described as an angel of Yahweh, and she calls him both Lord Yahweh and God. Okay, so, and he doesn't rebuke her in any sense on that. Let's go over to uh, uh, Genesis 31. Here's Jacob when he wrestles with the angel of Yahweh. Okay. Uh, verse 11. The angel of Yahweh said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. He said, look up and see all the male goats meeting with the flock are streaked, speckled, spotted, for I've seen all that Laban has been given. He says, I am the God of Bethel, where you appointed a pillar. So this angel of Yahweh announces, I am God. Exodus 3. Here we've got Moses. Moses in the burning bush here. He sees a, a sight. He sees a, a burning bush. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire within a bush. Moses goes, I've got to figure out what all this is. Verse 4, the Lord saw that he had come over to look. God called to him within the bush. I thought this was the angel of the Lord, verse 2 says. But here it says, it's actually the Lord. Go down verses 6 and 7. Then he said, the angel of Yahweh said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. Yahweh said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people Egypt. So this angel of Yahweh is called God. Go over to Judges. This, uh, this is a prequel here to Samson's ministry. And this angel of Yahweh appears to Samson's parents, in this case. Judges 13, 13. Uh, this man comes. And uh, he's talking to first to, uh, to, to Samson's mother and then his father, Manoah. So Manoah comes up, okay, wait a minute, what are, what are you doing? 
Uh, what what what's this message you gave to my wife? Well, the angel of the Lord says in verse thirteen, your wife must do all that I told her. So it's clearly the angel of Yahweh. But then look down to verse fifteen. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, "We'd like you to stay until we prepare a goat for you." The angel of the Lord replied, "Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord." Manoah didn't realize that it was the angel of the Lord. And so he goes ahead, verse 18. Why do you ask my name? Who are you? I don't understand who you are. And the answer is, I am Pele. I am wonderful. It's beyond understanding. It's the same word that we find in Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Pele, beyond your understanding. Wonderful counselor. Sing, sing the uh, hallelujah chorus there. But, um, but uh, it's beyond your understanding. And Manoah took the young goat together, with the grain offering, and sacrificed it on the rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame uh, blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of Yahweh, I thought it was Yahweh, well, yes, ascended in the flame up into heaven. And he is really worried because he's seen Yahweh and he thinks he's going to die. So so, so there's this interchange of this, this the, the name Yahweh, and the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh and Yahweh are the same person. Okay. Secondly, this angel takes credit for divine functions. In Judges 2, he says, I am the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. He receives worship. You know, these uh, here, here Manoah and his wife actually worship this angel of Yahweh, and he's not rebuked. Uh, if he was just an angel, what, what happens when you know what happens in, in Revelation when John worships an angel inadvertently? The angel's like, get up, get up, get up! I'm going to get in trouble. No, you can't do this. <laughs> you can't worship me. I'm, I'm just an angel. You can only worship God. Uh, so, so, so all of these, you know, this 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 angel of Yahweh receives worship from Manoah. Uh, from Moses, from Joshua. We also know that this angel is not God the Father. Well, how do we know this? Well, because they actually have a conversation with each other. Zechariah 1, so at the other end of the Old Testament here, Zechariah 1, 12 and 13. The angel of the Yahweh said, Yahweh, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem? Okay, so here's Yahweh the angel of Yahweh, who is Yahweh, has a conversation with Yahweh. Okay, so, you know, we're, we're starting to get pieced together, you know, perhaps a little bit of what's going on here. But this angel of Yahweh is a separate person within the Godhead. And so that's why we say it's not the Father, because this representation of God had a conversation with God the Father. And so again, we're, we're start, starting to put the pieces together here that this is a special messenger from God who is divine uh, that God sends at various points in the uh, in the history of the Old Testament. We also said here he takes this name of given Christ in Scripture, Pele, this wonderful counselor, mighty God. Historically then, letter E, Christ is the only visible member of the Trinity. And so, with that in view, since it's not the Father... Who is it? Well, the only visible member of the Trinity, according to John. No one has ever seen God. Rather, Christ has explained him. Okay, uh, he, the, the the one who's clothed in flesh here. 
then it must be Jesus. And furthering this point, once Jesus is conceived, I probably should say the conception of Jesus, uh, there is there is there are no no more references to this angel of Yahweh. He completely disappears from the pages of Scripture. So once Jesus is in in uh, Mary's womb, no more angel of Yahweh shows up for the rest of the scriptures. Okay, all of the other angels after this point come, I say, in anarthrous form. So it's not the angel of the Lord; it's just an angel. Okay, so one of these lesser beings comes and ha- and uh, does something in the in the New Testament. Okay, so the coming Messiah is identified by Malachi also as the angel of the covenant, which is a parent synonym for the angel of Yahweh. So, we, we conclude here that this angel of Yahweh probably is Jesus. He appears at various points in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't actually have specificity there in the Old Testament, but from where we sit, we can put it all together and conclude that this angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. Okay? And so, how can this be? Well, we must distinguish between the person and position of Christ. In his person, Christ is Yahweh God, but in his relationship to the Father, he is a subordinate son. That is, he is a messenger, spokesman for the Trinitarian arrangement. Okay, And we should, we said earlier last semester, and this is sort of a a review of that, uh, just because... uh, um, you know, God does, the Father does certain things, and the Son does certain things. We shouldn't get into our heads here that there's some sort of a strict, absolute hierarchy that's always, nonetheless, there does seem to be this idea that there is a God, the Father, who is decretally in charge of this relationship, and then the agent, you know, the agent of, uh, and that's the second person of the Trinity. He seems to be, in some sense, subordinate to the Father. He acts as his spokesman, his agent, carrying out the decree and plan of the Father. And so that's probably what we have here. So Jesus does show up in the in the Old Testament. I'm convinced of that. Uh, that these that these these references to the angel of Yahweh are actually references uh, to, to Jesus Christ uh, before he becomes permanently human. Do you have thoughts on that? So when God appeared in the burning bush. So that was pre-incarnate Christ. Well, since it was the angel of Yahweh, and since we since we know the angel of Yahweh from you know if we put all the passages together on the angel of Yahweh together, the angel of Yahweh is God, but he's not the Father. So who is he? Well, the obvious choice here is that it's the second person of the Trinity, who is the only member of the Trinity that ever shows up visibly, and uh, and. Uh, Become, he's the word, you know. He's the he's the spokesman. He's the revealer of God, and so that's uh, I, I, that's why I'm pretty well ninety nine percent convinced that these have got to be references to Jesus in the Old Testament. Other thoughts? Okay. Well, we'll come back next week. Talk a little bit more about this and uh, move on to our next discussion. That is the incarnation. Okay?